From digital horsemanship, this is Finding the Field, bringing you stories and insights from today's most inspiring horsemen and women. Great horses can teach you so much more than all the good horse trainers in the world. You know, they can teach you a lot, but great horses teach you even more. I'm sitting here with Jason Van Lanningham, longtime horseman, NRHA million dollar rider, and an all around family man. So I'm super excited to have you here, Jason. Anything you want to tell us before we get into it? Uh, you know, our whole deal is uh, it is very family based. Uh, you know, that's my son out there loping a two year old around, and my wife's in the barn washing and saddling horses for me. And it's very, whenever you say family oriented, that's what we do here. It's all ran by us, and, and uh, we have help uh on occasion but uh for the most part it's it's the van landing hams out here doing the work so very much a, a family-based business yeah and that's kind of how it started for you right oh absolutely as a teenager i read that you broke ponies and yeah well sold i wasn't a teenager and... i was uh six seven years old something like that i started very young my uh, brother and i used to we'd sell christmas ponies every year and so during the summertime we'd buy up every cheap pony we could get and then I'd ride the hair off of them and get them broke, 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 and, and then we'd sell them, and, and uh, on Christmas Eve, we would deliver them to all the places, and we put ribbons around their neck and a card from Santa, and so the next morning when the kids woke up, they had a little pony there that was from Santa Claus. We got every sort of rotten little pony you could get, and, and uh, just, just rode them hard and, and got them broke, but... I mean, the ponies that stuck with me were the ones that we, we got to keep one. And it was one that we got my brother whenever he was little. It was his first, I don't know if it's his first pony, but one of the ponies that he had whenever he was little. And then my sisters both rode her and I rode her. Her name was Coco. And uh, she was probably 35 or 40 when she died. She lived to be for forever, but she was the pony that we all learned how to ride on. My dad had a small acreage in southeast Kansas, still lives on the same place that I grew up on. But his farm uh, ground all the way around him and all the farmers gave us free reign in the place we could ride anywhere we wanted to so from an early age on my brother and I were starting colts for other people and, and doing the ponies and all that kind of good stuff of course he was eight years older than me so he was buying the ponies and I was doing the riding and we would get horses in to start. There was a, about an 80-acre cornfield right below our house that it was kind of flood ground, and so it never really had a crop in it. Whenever it did get in there, it would get ruined. So the guy would let us just ride all over it, and he kept it plowed up pretty deep. So we'd go out in the middle of the 80 acres with a you know one that never been broke before. We had no technique at all. We would just saddle them up and crawl on. And they would usually stop bucking by the time they got through the plowed field 80 acres later. So it was very, very Western. There was, uh, as far as how we start the babies now, nobody ever bucks and everybody's safe and all that kind of good stuff. We didn't do anything safe. Everything was, was very Western, very, lots of Broncos, all that kind of good stuff. But we learned how to, to sit a horse and to hang on for life. And, so we made it to the edge of the field. Usually by the time you got there, they were tired enough to you can kind of gain control of them. And then we just rode them all over the countryside. You can ride anything now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the guy that I started off doing the rain under, he, he always said, you know, you could uh, strap a saddle on the back of a mountain lion, that kid could ride it. So, uh, yeah, I learned how to have sticky bridges. So then how did you decide to get into raining from there? Well, whenever we uh, graduated out of high school, Adrian and I, I met her in the, in the third grade and we were high school she was my my girl for a long time so we got married right out of high school i was playing a little bit of baseball at that time but when we had our first uh, daughter baseball was kind of a single man sport so i got out of that and and i had like i said I'd always been riding horses so i worked at my parents steakhouse waiting tables and uh and always had a few colts that i was riding and i was just buying them and reselling them and um it was kind of a weird deal my brother and my dad bought a bunch of uh, uh, paint mares off of these people, Eber Marine Christopher up in, in Illinois. And they owned a horse called QT Pogo Streak. And uh, at that point in time, the paints were huge. And he was homozygous for the Tobiano gene and homozygous for the black gene. And they must have bred 150 mares a year to that horse. And, and they had all these homozygous mares. And my dad and my brother brought, bought a bunch of them off of them just to raise paint babies. My dad always had a paint stud around. And so we had a ton of paint babies. And, and um, whenever they bought the horses off of those guys, it was the first show horse people that I'd ever actually met. And he did reining horses. And, and so after my sophomore year in college, I got a job with him to be able to uh, hopefully get my horses to turn around better. So when I took them to the sale barns, they would bring more money. And uh, my plan was to go spend the summer there and then come back and go back to my junior year of college. And, and uh, whenever I got up there, I kind of fell in love with it. And, and we stayed there almost a year. 
and then moved back to Kansas and started training reining horses from there. But no, it was it was an accident how I came across it. I'd never seen a reining horse until we were 20 years old. Didn't have any show experience at all, so I was definitely a, a late comer to it. But uh, it, it's pretty cool how it all came about. What did you feel when you first saw? a reining competition well actually right before i moved up there at that point in time they had the futurity finals on espn and uh, they just had like a 30 minute segment or something and it showed the top four or five horses i think that year i think john slack won it and todd bergen was second top maybe with tim mcquay so there was three or four of those guys that i got to see and so i I had an idea of it and i thought wow that's awesome it looks like a lot of fun those guys horses look really broke and then uh i went went up there and went to work for those guys and and that was the first time I'd ever seen a sliding stop or a horse with, I didn't know what body control was. I didn't know there was such a thing as pushing hips around and getting them soft in the face. And why would you want to do that? I, I didn't understand any of that. And that guy, Eber was, he was hard on me, yelled, cuss at me, but he put a ton of mental pressure on me. And, and his way of thinking is, yeah, you're either going to get it or you're not. And so in a short amount of time, I was there 10 and a half months, almost exactly. And in that time, frame I went from knowing absolutely nothing about training a horse to where I could move any body part I wanted to and I had a basic understanding of the turnaround and the stop and lead changes and how to get one a circle and so it was a crash course but he had me riding 20 plus horses every day and I mean he was he was putting the screws to me so it was a great experience it was hard work but man it, it sure fast forwarded because a lot of people to get the information that I had it'd take them five to ten years to get and I got it in a short period of time so that was pretty cool tell us about a time where you're out riding and Eber's yelling at you and Oh, that was every day. I mean, whenever I was out there, I mean, he would just, he would scream at the top of his lungs and, what are you doing? And, and, uh, made me get off and he'd get on the horse and they go leaping through the air. And, you know, I'd have something messed up and he'd get everything knocked back into place and I'd get back on and the next horse would be the same thing. But it took me a, a few months to figure out what was going on, how, you know, the kind of pressure he was putting on the horse. I could put the pressure on. I had no idea when to turn loose. So I was making horses rear up. I was making horses run off. I had them doing everything under the sun. And then I finally learned the turn loose part is the important part. And then, of course, everything that I do now is is a thousand times refined from that point in time. Uh, looking back, it's great. At the time, whenever I was in it, I mean, there's there were so many times I wanted to step off my horse and jerk him off of his and just give him a beat down because I just, <laughs> that was my mentality at that time. You know, I was I was kind of bowed up and full of myself and nobody's going to talk to me that kind of way. And so there was a lot of times I was having to really bite my tongue, but I wanted to get better. And I knew that he was, that was the ultimate goal of it. I just had not ever experienced that type of environment. I grew up, my parents, you know, they had us in church every time the doors were open and and the environment I was in all the time, there were no cuss words. There were no anybody being disrespectful. My dad demanded extreme respect, but there was no foul language. There was no, you know, calling people names, no, that kind of stuff. That was a hard one for me to swallow, but it was great in the long run, but it was tough. It was a tough one to get going, but looking back, it was a great experience that made me who I am today. What was your approach to getting through that and making it productive? I've always been a very, very intense guy. Whenever I was a kid, I played all the sports, uh, football, basketball, and baseball, and, and wanted to be perfect at everything. So I really didn't, it didn't take any decompressing or anything at night. Whenever I, I left, I might be thinking about a horse, but I wasn't thinking about him at all. So for young people or for non-pros, whenever they're thinking about this kind of stuff, the non-pro or the coach is not trying to be mean to you. They just want you to get it figured out. And so you've got to look at it that way. This person is trying to help me get better at what I'm doing. So don't take offense at at that particular person. Don't, you know, if they said something to hurt your feelings, don't worry about it. They're just trying to make you you better. And whenever you take it like that, then you're not going to get mad at anybody or need to decompress or any of that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, that person is trying to help me out and try to help me get better. Anytime you've got a a coach that is passionate about what what they do, they're going to get fired up from time to time. They're going to raise their voice. Uh, They may say some things that they don't mean, but you just take that with a grain of salt and and understand the big picture here is they're trying to help me get better at what I'm doing from it. Right. Kind of channel that energy into what are they trying to teach me here? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So you mentioned during your time with Eber how you learned that releasing is one of the most important parts. Yeah. Can you kind of tell us what you mean by that? Well, yeah, for sure. So you can put pressure on a horse all day long and they won't learn a single thing unless you turn loose at the right time. And that goes from teaching a baby how to lead. I mean, you can be pulling on them and pulling on them and pulling on them. And if they're leaning away from you whenever you turn loose, 
you've not only not taught them to lead, but you've taught them to run the other way whenever you pull on them. So the release of pressure, the timing of the release is the most important thing that we do as horse trainers. Understanding how to get a horse's face off, you know, some, one of the simplest things, you know, teaching a horse to collect. If you turn loose whenever they're kind of taking their chin away from you, the next thing you know, they're going to be leaping through the air because they think that they're going to get a release of pressure from, you know, lifting their neck up. And if you if you pick up a horse's, you know, if you're putting pressure on a horse and they lift their neck and you turn loose, they're going to keep trying to get higher and higher. So that's how you teach a horse to rear up, to do the wrong stuff. But it's so simple to teach a horse how to be soft and nice if you just turn loose at the right time. You don't have to be putting a ton of pressure on them and kicking and beating and doing all that kind of stuff. You just hold them until they're in the right spot and turn loose. And on the babies, it's small increments. And, and as they get older, then they can handle more pressure and you refine the area that you want to put them in. But yeah, it's always the release of pressure that the horse learns from until as a rider, you learn how to release at the right time. Uh, you're always going to have difficulties in training the horse. And the same is true for me today. I've been doing it for 20 years and I'll still make mistakes. And that's the reason my horses aren't perfect. If we came out and we were perfect every day in our release and we were perfect in our timing every every single time we picked up our hands, in six months time, we'd have these things completely perfect. But none of us... I'm not there yet. Some of the guys are so much better than I am at training the horse, but that's something that I'm constantly working on and, and refining myself. So for somebody that's just getting started, it's going to take time. You just got to be patient and try to, to learn each and every day. But it's always the release of pressure that the horse learns from. So what are they learning when you release that pressure? What are you telling them? Let me back that up a little bit. On my two-year-olds, I try to teach the horses how to be trained. So I'm spending their two-year-old year. Yes, I'm putting maneuvers on there, but I want them to learn how to be trained. And what I look for in a horse is for them to hunt that release of pressure, to hunt me leaving them alone. So if you'll see my finished horses, I'm not doing a whole lot up there because they are, have learned how to hunt being correct. And so they're trying to help me out. If you're putting pressure on a horse and all they want to do is fight you, that's a problem. So whenever I put pressure on a horse, not only do I want them to get to the correct spot, but I want them to relax under pressure. If you teach a horse to get tense and uptight, that's a problem in a pressure situation because when you go show, there's going to be pressure. You got people in the stands. The energy in the building at the Futurity is, is crazy. You walk in there, you can go in there in the middle of the night and there's no energy in the building at all. You walk in there whenever it's showtime and there's five or 6,000 people in there and everybody's screaming and loud. There's just a level of intensity. Your adrenaline is more... The horse's adrenaline is going to go up. There's the all of the energy from the, the people that are there. So if you've not taught your horse how to relax under pressure, they're going to come apart on you. And so you'll see some horses that go have one or two great runs, and then they're done because they can't handle the pressure. They haven't been taught to relax under pressure. But you'll see the great riders, they're going to go in there, and their horse is going to be standing there with their neck relaxed. It's funny to me. We'll see some people on, on social media from time to time. They'll see a picture of a horse standing there with their neck down at the end of it. And they say rude comments about how oh, you're, there's, nobody likes your sport because that horse's neck's down too low. Mm-hmm. Well, if you go look at a horse in the pasture, that their neck is made correctly. And we've been breeding these horses for years and years for them to have correct confirmation. But if their neck ties into the shoulder correct, and so they naturally have kind of a low frame to them, if they're standing out there in the pasture relax their nose is going to be down there by their knees that's just how god made him and that's how a horse if you watch him if you go spook one out in the pasture the first thing that happens is their neck comes up in the air and they bolt off okay well if a horse is relaxed out in the pasture the neck's going to be down and relaxed so i teach a horse to relax under pressure by putting pressure on them and showing them how to relax that neck so from years and years of experience I know that if I can teach a horse to keep their neck relaxed in a pressure situation, that I can maintain control of that horse. If that horse's neck comes flying up under pressure, then I've lost control of the horse. So a lot of the stuff that you see people doing at horse shows, the great horse trainers, Greg Schmersel and Andrea and Sean and Jordan and Casey, and I mean, the list is very, very long. Their horses are going to be going around with their necks down and relaxed. And maybe they're teaching them. Maybe they're pulling on them and, and teaching that horse to relax their neck, but they're teaching that horse to relax under pressure. Pressure. And maybe, maybe they say it a different way than what I'm saying right now, but that's what they're doing. They're teaching the horse to relax under pressure. And you'll see those guys in high-pressure situations. Their horse will be standing there with their neck down and licking their lips relaxed. They're just taking it all in because they've been taught to relax under pressure. And we start that as babies, teaching them to give in under those pressure situations. And then you can just 
build and build. If you were to take a, uh, a two-year-old and you're trying to ask him to turn plus one speed or you're running down there wide open to ask him to stop, that's way too much pressure. But you can build that over time, small increments, small increments, and by the end of their three-year-old year, you can take a relatively young horse and they're so mature if you've done it the right way. So that's the release of pressure. The whole idea behind it is get them to be a willing partner and relaxing in pressure situations. So then do you use that as a tool when you go show? So it sounds like over time you teach this horse that picking up on their face is teaching them. You're actually saying like, hey, chill out, relax for yeah. me. And yeah. then that, is that something you can then apply when you go show? Because I think yeah, as a non, I ask because as a non-pro, we're always thinking pick up frame, frame, frame. So then that's when we go out the show and like, oh, my horse is leaning or this and that. So yeah. we pick up for that reason. But it sounds like you use it for also different reasons. Yeah. So I'll use that throughout the training process. But let's say if you're just going out there and you're picking your hand up just to get your horse to drop their neck and that's all you're doing, then you're just going to teach a horse to dump over and they're not going to be collected and they're not going to be guiding and all that kind of stuff. So on the younger horses, every time I go to soften them up, like to relax their neck, I'm going to take a hold of their feet first. So let's say I'm loping around and my horse is leaning or being resistant. I'm going to steer first. And then once their feet have gone where I told them to, then I'm going to tell them to get in the correct frame and relax that day. And so on the babies, you're going to see us out here just guiding a ton. Guide, relax them. Guide them, relax them. Guide them, relax them. Just do that over and over and over until they learn how to stay between the reins. And then once they learn to have learned how to stay between the reins, then yes, we'll start driving their hind quarters up underneath them a little bit more and relaxing the neck while we're doing it to make them collect more. Because then they're in a position to where they can go fast and they can go slow without falling out of lead, without leaning on you and doing all those kinds of things. You can do your lead changes and everything. There's, there's a process to it all, but it has to happen in these steps. And so for a non-pro that is just sitting here watching or somebody that's new to the industry and they're just watching people out there ride and they're seeing them pick up on their face a lot, well, they probably don't see what's happening below the rider's waist. The rider's legs is, are very busy. You know, they're engaging a hindquarters or they're moving a shoulder over. They're doing all these different kinds of things, but they're putting the horse in a frame that is, you've got them in a spot to where you can get their maximum potential. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you've got a horse that's all strung out when they're loping around, okay. Some people say, well, look, you shouldn't be dropping that horse's neck. You shouldn't be picking on their face and doing all that kind of stuff. Just let them go wherever. Well, if you've got a horse that's going around with their head stuck straight up in the air and their back end's way out behind them, it's almost impossible, unless that horse is perfect leaded, to get them to change leads. It's almost impossible to get that horse to slow down, to go fast and to go slow without stepping out of lead and falling apart and to do it on a consistent basis. So you have to teach a horse how to be collected and to be soft and uh, to where you can do these maneuvers at a very high level without them making mistakes and to be able to do it consistently. So everything we're doing is about having a consistent horse that understands what we're doing and they stay relaxed in the process. What about you? What about the pressure that's on you? How do you stay relaxed? Yeah, so that's nervous? a different story. Like I said, as a kid, I played a ton of sports. So I never, in pressure situations, they've not ever really bothered me. Now, to watch somebody show, like uh, I've had a few non-pros in the past to watch them or to watch my son show, I get extremely nervous. <laughs> if The only time I'm really nervous before I go show is if I feel like I'm unprepared. Well, if I've got a horse that something's just not quite right on it, then that kind of bothers me a little bit. But whenever I was coming up showing, like I said, I got started in this deal late. And a lot of people, they show all the time whenever they're a youth kid and then they transition into an open rider and they're learning how to train horses, but they already know how to show. And coming to it like I did, I didn't know how to show a horse. I figured out how to train a horse pretty quick from the pressure situations I was in with Fever. And then I moved to Texas and I went to work at Craig Johnson's and he had a ton of good horses. And so I was riding good horses and learning how to train at the next level. And so all, all of that was good. And being in North Texas, every horse show you go to, there's a ton of million dollar riders there. And, and you can just... You can absorb stuff like crazy. If you want to learn, show up at the horse shows and sit in a practice pen and watch the guys ride. I mean, you can learn fast. So I picked up the training part of it pretty quick, but I didn't understand how to just drop my hand and go show. I was always kind of still picking at them whenever I was going to the show pen and kind of half training, half showing. And trying to think what year it was, maybe 2011, 2000, oh, what was it? No, a little before that, 2009 or 10, somewhere along in there. I was at Tulsa, at Tulsa Rating Classic, and I was just frustrated. I mean, my horses, they were broke, but I wasn't able to get them shown good. Jordan, at that point in time, we trained together at Crossfire Arena for a few years, mm -hmm. starting in like 2003, 2003 to 2006. We were, we were riding out of the same place. And uh, 
I'll tell this Jordan this to his, to his face and he won't get too mad at me, but I always thought I was a better horse trainer than him at that point in time. And he was beating the pants off of me every time we would go show. And he actually sat me down at Tulsa and whatever year that was, maybe it's 2009. I know the horse, I had a rooster there that belonged to Roy and Jan Pence. Saline Rooster, I think was his name. And uh, I felt like the horse was really broke, but I was just having a hard time. Even in my paint warm-ups, things weren't where I wanted to. And he said, you know what? He said, I can take your horses and beat you all day long on your horses. I just need to get on them and, and go show them. He said, you don't trust your horses. You don't trust what you've done at home. And that really sank into me. And I think I... At that show, I ended up third on a horse that, you know, I was struggling just getting through the paid warm-up. And so from that point in time, I started training my horses. Okay, what do I need to do to get this horse shown? Okay, it's not about how broke they can be in the practice pen. And, and I still do that. I still want them really broke and I want them locked in on me. But what do I need to do to get that horse really shown good? And so I, I shift my train of thought whenever I'm, I'm training my horses to being not only do I want to be perfect in, in my footwork and, and everything, but what do I have to do to get that horse to show good? Whenever I walk to the pen and I've got my hand down, what do I've got to do? I need to do so. I started extremely refining everything at that point in time. All of my cues got smaller. I started using my feet more. I started doing those kinds of things to be able to start my turns and be able to shut my turnarounds off and to to line up really quick coming out of the corners going to my stops. But all of that made sense from that point forward you know whenever he said hey i'm gonna take your horses i'm gonna go beat you because i'm gonna trust what you put on there now i've started to trust that and refine a little bit more i think that's the reason that i've had some some more success and to preface this whole deal i feel like early on i had a horse dallas stylish star i won the southwest futurity on him i thought i had enough horse to win the futurity i don't think i was ready at that point in time mentally emotionally in my business and my family everything else and I think the good Lord just said, hey, let's put the brakes on it for a minute and you need to get your life right first and make sure that uh, you're ready for this. And then whenever as I started to mature and, and make sure that God was first and everything I did, I think everything started falling into place. And he's used different people. Craig Schmersel was huge. When he was living in Oklahoma, he was letting me come right up there once a month. And he was tweaking on me like crazy, you know, just refining the stuff that I was doing. So I, I've had guys help me along, but I think God's put them in our life to get us to where we're at today, you know, so we can get glory to him. So that's pretty cool, too. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about Craig in a minute. In this, I want to talk about for a minute, though, this transition of your thought process. So when you walk into the show pen today... What are you thinking? You wouldn't want to know what's going on in my mind. <laughs> I mean, there's a million things going on in there. I try to stay really focused and locked in on what I'm doing. When I go in, if I'm late in a set, I'm going to be checking out the ground as I'm, I use a jog in center, walk to center, whatever. On the way in, I'm checking out the ground so I don't have to be searching for it in my approach to the stop. I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to stop. I'm looking up at the walls to see where that's going to line up with so I know where I'm going to go whenever I, I go to my stops at the end of the pattern. If I'm early in the set, that doesn't matter. If I'm not, not rough at all, it doesn't matter. I can stop in somebody else's tracks there and deep ground or bad ground he's still going to stop but i've only had one of those horses so the rest of them i you try to find some decent ground so i'm checking that out on the way in you know whenever i i get to the middle i want to make sure the start of my turnaround is really good or make sure my lope departures is really pretty to start i've never had a horse where if i had a bad lope departure they recovered for me and my circles were good so i want my lope departure to be really good and clean and i work on all the little stuff at home when i'm doing my paid warm-ups i work on the little stuff my transitions how my horse slows down coming into my small slows they should by the time you get to the horse show they should know how to stop they should know how to turn they should know how to circle it's all the little stuff and so i make sure that that stuff is really good before i ever go in and then i focus on that stuff i make sure that my setup to my lead change is clean i make sure that that i'm sitting correctly whenever i slow my horse down so that gives them the best ability or the best opportunity to slow down and stay correct and so i'm thinking about the little stuff not really how's my turn going to be or how's my stop going to be if i'm going to walk in the show pit on one they should know how to do that so you you were talking though about how somehow you're showing your horses different than you're out here training them. So how is it different? Like, let's just say that that lope departure into right. a big so circle. How's that different? Be, before I really started thinking about uh, how everything was going to transition to the show pin, I was only working on the circle itself. I was only working on the stop itself, you know, just making sure that stuff was good. I wasn't thinking so much about the start to the maneuvers, the finish to the maneuvers, and the setup, you know, as you're transitioning into different maneuvers. And to me, that's what separates the really good guys from the guys that aren't there yet. If you look at, like I said, the guys that I mentioned earlier, Craig and Andrea and Sean and Jordan and Casey, those guys 
are perfect in their transitions. They don't make mistakes. They don't have shutoffs. I don't remember the last time Sean Flaherty had a turn penalty. I mean, the guy just he, he nails his shutoffs every time. And if you're thinking about those little things, you, once you get all your maneuvers broken, you're concentrating on that stuff. That's going to be what takes you to the next level. If you look at the makeup pin, if you go to the Futuria, the NRBC next week, okay, for example, there's going to be 50 to 100 horses there that are plus one in stops and plus one in turns. Everybody, there's so many good trainers right now, and there's so many good horses. We get each year, we probably get 10 or 12 two year olds in. Of that 10 or 12, two-year-olds, there's probably going to be eight or nine of them make open caliber horses. And that's a credit to all of the, the guys who've spent years and years refining the breeding program and all the breeders that we have now that are raising these nice horses. All the horses are good enough. You just got to get them broke good enough. So you're going to show up at the horse show at a major event and you're going to see plus one, plus one, plus one, plus one, just all over the makeup pen. But then you don't see that happen whenever guys get to the show pin. One, some guys get tight and tense when they go show, and that's understandable. There's a lot of pressure on them. But it's usually their setup. It's usually how they come out of the corner uh, when they're running to their stops or how if they get their body out of position when they're slowing their horse down, they miss a shot off in a turnaround, those kinds of things. It's all the little stuff that separates the elite guys from the next tier guys. And uh, that's what I'm constantly working on is all that little stuff to try to refine it, to try to get to that next level, try to get to the next level. So whenever you think about going into the show pit and what's going through my mind, you can't really, your mind just needs to be on all the little stuff and then let the big stuff take care of itself. So you're thinking about those little things and essentially setting your horse up for success. That's and exactly then, it. So if you have a good lead, lead departure, then from that point, yeah, Are you just trying to trust them completely? Yeah, from that point, my horse is broke to circle. So if I've got a nice, pretty lead departure and my horse stays framed up during the process of it, I don't have to make any corrections from that point. I can push forward, go ask for fast if that's what I'm supposed to be doing when I lope off or go hit my small slow if I lope off correct. If I lope off, my horse lifts his neck up and looks the wrong direction, then everything has to be recovered before I can start going faster. If I start going faster before it's recovered, then my horse's shoulder's dropping. They're looking to the outside. They're not collected. They're not in a frame that whenever I go to slow down, you know, I'm a 50-50 chance of staying in the lead. So you, you lose control if you don't do your little stuff right. But if you're doing your little stuff correct, then if you've done your, your work at home, then the big stuff is going to take care of itself. So then what about preparing to a show? I mean, how much time do you spend thinking about your pattern? What about all the pre-work? Thinking about the pattern, for us, a lot of our major events run the same patterns. You're going to be six or eight in the go-around or nine or ten in the finals. And those are great patterns to where you're not screwing your horse up before you get to the finals by running the, you know, the walk-in and turn patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get to run to the gate for the finals. So I'm not really thinking a lot about those because I've done them so many times. But I do understand how to prepare for those patterns. So I want, you know, like I said, I, I need the start of my turns to be really good. So I may go to a horse show and, and walk up it, into a makeup pin over there and start my turnaround, make sure it's good. And then I may walk out the gate and go to a, a different pin and go start the turnaround there again, make sure it's good. So I know when I walk to the center of the pin, my horse is going to fire turn. So you're thinking about those little things, how you're coming out of the corner. We talked about that. Those are the things that I'm focusing on before I go show. So if your horse is locked in, all your cues, then you know it's not going to be an issue whenever you whenever you go into the pen. So thinking about those little things, I'm thinking about it now. You know, we're, we're two weeks away from the show, and I've already started working a little bit on those kinds of things. That's in, in my everyday program. On the young horses, yeah, I'm just trying to to teach them how to be trained. I'm teaching them how to get through the maneuvers clean. But then by the time you're, it's time to go show, then you got to just start working on the little stuff and, and trust that the other stuff's going to take care of it. And working on those little things is that what helps you feel mentally prepared? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I know that I can start my turnaround without an issue and I can shut my turnaround off and I can set up my lead change without an issue and I can make a nice clean corner and kind of go into my stops, if I know all that stuff's there, then it takes a lot of the worry out of it. So then you just got to trust that your horse is prepared and you've done everything you can. And if you make a mistake, those kinds of things happen. And mistakes are going to happen to everybody. Very rarely do you see even the top guys have three horses in every finals. It's tough. And we're all riding good horses. So mistakes happen. Uh, there's a ton of good guys out there that are, are trying to take 
the next guy's spot. I think I'm a, a middle tier guy and I'm trying to take the next guy's spot up. So I'm always working at that. But uh, yeah, people are going to make mistakes and that's part of it. So when you make them, don't beat yourself up over it and just get ready to go to the next one. Now, having said that, I'm the world's worst. If I mess up, I'm mad at myself for, for weeks. But at the same time, you know, I may have to go show if I make a mistake in the finals and I've got two or three in the finals, I'm going to have to go show six horses later. So you got to just get it out of your head and go again. But you know, that's what keeps us going too. You know, if, if we went out and won every horse show every time, and kind of take the fun out of it. You got to get your, your tail whipped. And so it keeps you fired up and makes you work at home and, and try to be prepared for the next time. So. Can you tell us about a time where you made a mistake and, and what oh, you learned man. from that? Uh, I've made lots of those mistakes. Let's say, for example, uh, not rough at all. Okay, That's to me the, the greatest animal that I've, I've ever had to throw a leg over at this point in time. One of the things that made him great was you always, like, I never ran him and stopped him at home. And especially not hard. I just kind of cruise him, make sure he was running straight, but never running near as hard as I did at the horse shows. He was always a max effort kind of horse. But I went to the NRBC my, uh, uh, his five-year-old year, and um, it was really hot and humid. And so I changed what I do to get a horse ready. I have a set program that I do. I'm not going to give tell all my trade secrets away. But <laughs> I have a set, set thing that I do. I know exactly... Like I saddle my horse at a certain number of horses before I show. I get on them at a certain number. I'm thinking in my head, okay, whenever I go out there, I have this many horses left, so I need to be working on this maneuver at that point in time. And my program is set up to where I do it basically on every horse. And so whenever I walk into the pen, they're locked in and, and ready to roll. Well, it was really hot and humid that year, and uh, I went in and got him out and just trotted him around a little bit and went to go show. Well, whenever I loped off, he was still fresh as I'll get out, and he's strong and physically and strong just a tough horse. I could have got him ready how I normally do and he'd have been great. But the crowd started yelling and he was like, all right, let's go. And I mean, he just, he took off without me. I just, I totally messed up on how I prepared the horse and that was a hundred percent my fault. And so I had to live with that for a year. I mean, it just keeping me up at night, how I screwed up on that because that was the only finals that he didn't make. I mean, he, he was, if he didn't win it, he was right there at the, at the top of everything we ever went to. And so that was the only thing we ever missed out on. And thankfully the next year he won the thing. So it was a little bit of redemption for me, but that was a very, very hard one to swallow because I knew it was a hundred percent my fault. So those kind of things, they, they really, really sit with me a long, long time. As you can see, I'm still not quite over it. <laughs> <laughs> so that NRBC, what exactly did you do differently? His five-year-old year? Yeah, his five-year-old yeah, year. So, so that's what I was saying. I just got him out and I just tried him around for 15 minutes and went in and showed. You just shortened it. Yeah. And, but normally I get on the horse, I saddle him up an hour and a half ahead of time and I'm doing a lot of walking around and, and I'll maybe work on circles a little bit and walk for a while. And, and so I just have a program mm-hmm. and I went in there and, and he got ahead of me a little bit and, and I just pushed harder. It was just stupid. I mean, I, he was broken out to where whenever he started to get ahead of me, I could have softly picked my hand up and been right back there where I needed to be. But I just, I ran him off. It was stupid. It was, it was one of those things that, like I said, as soon as I walked out of the pen, I knew exactly what I did wrong, but it was too late at that point in time. So lesson learned, hopefully. But And then I did it again this year at the Futurity. We are in the semifinals and a horse that uh, I actually owned, thankfully, and it wasn't one of the customer's horses, but I got him completely ready and he was good to go. They told us what time we were starting. I was in the first set going early. And uh, then they made the announcement 10 minutes before we, we were going to go show or before it, it started, 30 minutes before it started, that they had an opening ceremonies that they were going to be doing. And it was going to set us back a half an hour. So I just left him standing over there at the stall, not doing anything. And he got his air, you know, all up underneath him. And, and he was freshened up a little bit. And I just walked up there and tried him around and went in the show. And he got ahead of me a little bit. And that's not like him. And uh, I ended up having a subpar run. And Craig Schmersel knocked me out the very last horse of the semifinals, you know, seven horses later so that was a, a frustrating thing for me I missed the finals by half a point and uh, I didn't trust what I had there whenever he freshened up on me I backed off a little too far and I kind of showed soft so it was one of those things that I knew better and, and whenever they made the announcement that they changed everything up on us right before the semifinals I I should have jumped back on and, and made sure everything was right again, but I didn't. But those are the things that, that really stick out. It, you know, it's not the horse's fault. It's a mistake that I make, and uh, those things haunt me a little bit. But. So that particular instance of the fraternity, suddenly you had 30 extra minutes. 
So, and you had been on previous to that? Yeah, I'd, I'd been on the horse before, ready to go. I mean, he was ready to go, and I just went and tied him in the stall and, and let him hang out. And I should have just walked him around and kept jogging and, you know, just, I, on. yeah. On a horse like him, he's a little stingier horse. I should have just kept him moving a little bit instead of letting him stand still and and, uh, and freshen back up on me a little bit. What about a time where it all came together? There's been a few of those. It's one of your favorites. Yeah. So my, my favorite was not rough at all's three year old year. Whenever he, uh, you know, I, I knew he was he was a special horse about summer of his three year old year, right before the red bud. Actually, I think we go to that in June. We were I was out here riding him and. And I, I've been the one on him every day, and so I've not really seen him. And my wife was sitting out here. I said, hey, grab your phone and, and video him running and stopping so I can see what it looks like. And I run him down there and stopped him, and she just starts laughing. She said, holy cow. And you hear it on the video, and uh, uh, her giggling and, and saying, holy cow. And she hands me the phone, and I push play, and, and I was like, oh, my goodness. I knew he stopped me, but I had no idea he looked like that. And so going into Tulsa, I had no idea what to expect. I was kind of just cruising him around in my circles. And I turned him pretty good, but cruising him in the circles. But I wanted to see what he had. So I turned the corner and ran him down there to stop. And I think plus one or one and a half to all three of them. And goes to Vegas the next week and does it again. And so he's the front runner. And, and people are, are trying to buy him like crazy and take him somewhere else. Nobody wanted to leave him where he was at. So the offers are getting big, really getting big. And um, whenever Vaughn, he called me up, he said, hey, here's the latest offer. And he said, I'm going to I'm gonna leave it in your hands. He said, uh, we'll sell him if you want to sell him. And, and he said, I'm going to have to pay a ton of taxes on this. So we're going to take good care of you on it. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, it's crazy money. You should take it. But I said, you know, obviously I would love to show the horse and not take the money. And he said, I was hoping you were going to say that because that's what we want to do too. So it was, pressure was on at that point in time. I mean, basically it was win it or bust. So we went to the Futurity and, uh, you know, he's good in the first go and he's good in the second go. And I'm not asking much out of him, just making sure that we stay clean and safe. And then we go to the finals and, you know, he gets done what he does. And there was no fist pumping or throwing my hat or any of that kind of stuff. It was just relief. You know, it was an extreme amount of relief of pressure because had we not won it, it would have been a catastrophic event as far as I was concerned because he was supposed to win the thing. And if he didn't, it would have been my fault. So that's when at the time when it all came together and it, everything went perfect and uh, it was just a, a chance to breathe. So that was really, really cool. There's been other horses that everything just worked. How I got not rough at all, there's kind of a chain reaction of horses that, that got me to him. A smoking whiz. I showed him at the Futurity in 2011. He was sent to me as a yearling to fit up to sell. So we, we took him to the NRHA sales and he got sick while he was there, like tied up really bad and, uh, in his stomach and thought we were going to have to do colic surgery on him. So we had to pull him out of the cell, ran him to the Oak Ridge Vet Clinic over there and they got him all taken care of. Didn't have to have surgery or anything. And so they sent him home with me. I belonged to Sunrise Ranch. They sent him home with me and said, well, go ahead and ride him. We'll sell him his two-year-old year or into his three-year-old year, just whenever you think it's, it's going to work. Well, I start riding him and, and he's very, very talented. The most talented horse I'd had at that point in time by far. So his three year old year there's a lot of people that are interested in, in buying that horse and had a couple guys come out to try well something happened to him again and to me this was god working again in a huge way he was sick as a yearling but nothing major and we had to pull him out of the cell his three-year-old year he gets bad sick like to where nobody wants to look at him anymore and he'd spent 30 days to where we were turning him loose in our front yard just to let him walk around and eat grass to try to survive the vets couldn't figure out what was wrong with him we thought maybe he had overheated uh was carrying a very high temperature we put uh misters in his stalls and fans on him to keep his body temperature down it was just a crazy thing so Right about two weeks before, at that point in time, they have this show in Fort Worth that NRHA was putting on a pre-futurity. A couple of weeks before that, he started feeling better. And so we took him down there. I mean, I hadn't been riding, been trotting him around a little bit, took him around there, cruised him around. He was pretty good and ended up having the horse at the futurity and marked really good in the first go around. And I safetyed up a little in the second go around and, and missed the finals of the level four. But I'm in the level three finals, leading it all the way through to the last intermediate guy that had made the open finals that night ties us. So we have a runoff and that was my first time to run through the gate on Saturday night for a finals even though it wasn't in the level four finals I at least got to go into the big crowd and he's he was awesome he worked 26 and won the thing and maybe had the best run of the futurity his score would have put him right there at the top so that was an open door for me because uh I had a nice three or a nice yeah 
two coming three-year-old at the house that uh, his name was Lucas Hybid. And the people that owned him said that we could sell him and keep him in the barn. They, they left that choice. They said, just be patient and sell him as long as you can keep him. We want to sell him, but we'll be patient with it. And I called up. Philip Solom and said, hey, I've got this nice horse. They're going to let me keep him. You know anybody that would buy him and leave him? He said, Justin Zimmerman's looking for a horse. And so Justin Vaughn partnered on the horse, bought him, left him with me. And uh, we ended up being top five at the Futurity on him the next year and, and was reserved in the intermediate. Because we had all this success on him, went over 100000 on him as a three-year-old. They said, we've got a two-year-old at the house. And if he goes to the sale and, and doesn't do any good, they put him in the prospect sale, we're going to keep him and send him to you. And that was not rough at all. So there was a whole chain reaction of horses. Horse had to get sick twice for me to be able to keep him. And Sunrise Ranch had had horses with me for 10 years, but it was always to sell them. And I, I got to show a few of them, but it was always their junkers that didn't sell. So never did have a ton of success. Would sneak in the lower level finals here and there, but nothing big. And so I finally got to keep a good one for them. And he, I think I won 140 some odd thousand on him. And it led to Wimpy's high bid. He won 140 some thousand and it led to not rough at all. He won a bunch. So yeah, it definitely seems like once you, these kind of weird series of events yeah. got you some real nice ones, but then you got this momentum and it just, yeah. It so just from that point, we, it seems like every horse that came in the barn was a good one. One year we had, I think, eight two-year-olds sent to us. Six of those ended up being open horses. I mean, it was crazy. And, and horses, AR Guns and Roses. I didn't have him in the barn until they sent him to me at the Southwest Futurity. And I showed him there. It was top five there and then ended up being top five at the, at the Futurity on him. And the guy that was going to show him, Andre Lauzon, that owned him, his he had a dear friend that uh, was badly sick from cancer. And he had told her that he wasn't going to leave her side, even though he was going to show this horse in the non-pro futurity. He said, hey, I'm not, not going to leave your side. And because she was sick, he needed some place for that horse to go. I'd went up there to buy the horse for another customer. He was just going to go ahead and, and sell him. I went and tried him out and loved the horse, but they didn't, the people that was going to buy him backed out. Mm-hmm. And so he said, hey, just, I'm going to send the horse to you because you like him so well and you go show him. So I had him and he's top five in the futurity. And it was just one horse right after another that was putting us right there at the top. And it was strange circumstances how they come, they were getting to me. And other people would call it coincidence that to me, I'm, I'm thinking the good Lord put us in a position to be successful. So that's kind of how it all got rolling. And then from each one of those really good horses, they all taught me different things on how to get a horse shown. A smoking whiz was very stinging. So I had to really focus on learning how to teach a horse to slow down really good. And so he, he helped me with these other horses. And Not Rough at All had so much stop that he taught me how to teach horses to what the feel was. Okay, mm-hmm. So now I know what a really great one's supposed to feel like stopping. So now I can teach my other horses to do the same thing. And a smoking whiz was also a freak turning around. His feet could move so fast, whether they're in the correct spot or not. So I had to really hone in on how to get his get the start of my turns and how to teach a horse to really shut off good. And so that was beneficial to the other horses as they came along. So I've learned something from every horse that has helped me be a better trainer and a better showman on the, the next generation of horses. So it's really cool. You can learn so much from somebody telling you what to do and the horses teach you the rest. And uh, great horses can teach you so much more than all the good horse trainers in the world you know they can teach you a lot but great horses teach you even more you called not rough at all you actually have a barn name for him what, what's it's Vinny is there a story behind how he no, got the name not really he came into the barn and, and he was by a sparkling vintage and, and I didn't know really what to call him and, and Vinny kind of looked I looked at him and I was like Vinny sounds good and it just stuck and so that was his, his barn name all the way through so you call him a very special horse what makes him so special other than his talent obviously talent talent was it I mean he's great minded obviously to be able to go do all the different runs that he had we showed him he's running as hard as he can in the finals at the Futurity and then at the NRBC and at the Derby again and he's you know he's winning these major events as you go so it's not like we're just cruising around and, and trying to be in the top right. 10 he's, he's winning them and then he wins Vegas and then turn around and in his five-year-old year and I had the issues that I did and then actually at the Derby's five-year-old year so we had a little bit of a wreck at the NRBC because I didn't prepare him right I wasn't going to do that again so I, I've got him really locked in I do good in the go around at the Derby and then in the final I go in there and he still stops huge, but not like he normally does. I mean, he was having to really be gritty and I could feel it. I could feel his muscles like being really tense in his back end whenever we were stopping. And he actually stepped out of lead one part in my circle and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I come outside and my slider is in the makeup pen. So he goes in and he plus ones 
three stops and plus half the other one with one slider on and his you know he was used to whenever you're running they kind of slide a little bit and you know their feet mm-hmm. with them sliders on they're used to that and he was sticking on him and i think that's why he stepped out of lead because that right hind leg didn't have a slider on it and so that foot was sticking and stood again a little bit and i think that was the reason he stepped out and he, and he fixed it but it was a one point penalty and that was the difference in him getting i think he got seventh or eighth instead of winning it if he has those three points from stepping out for a point from east jets then, then he wins that as, as a four-year-old too so he was just so great-minded to be able to consistently do what he did at such a high level obviously he had the ability but he had a, just a tremendous amount of heart and um, you can't teach that so that's what made him really special he just tries for you every time oh yeah i mean whenever you're trying to corner i could run him as fast as you could possibly run a horse and he was fast too it's not like he was a, a little slow poker he could get it and so you could turn the corner and he'd build every stride even on, on those massive pins like it down at katie and you're running 9-0 when you get there and he just swallows the ground up not many horses can do that so that's what made him special and, and over the course of him showing three four five and six year old year four years of showing he didn't miss a stop once i don't know any horses that do that i yeah. mean i've had some really great horses but they've all missed a stop somewhere so yeah, he's pretty special what's it like training a horse with so much trying and so much heart is there anything you are extra careful of yeah so if you've got a horse that okay for example a smoking whiz he was an overachiever so as a two-year-old just trying to put leg control on if you're loping around you squeeze with your outside leg he would jump 15 feet to the inside i mean he was an extreme overachiever everything he did in the turnaround you lay your reins to turn him around you cluck he would just he would jump he would just try to fire so hard so if you've got those horses that are extreme overachievers you got to chill out a little bit and you know i talked to you about a little bit earlier on, on not rough at all stopping i never ran him hard at home as physical as he was and granted he was stout as can be i think he would have handled it just fine but uh, if i had ran him hard and stopped him every day to his max ability i think you could have crippled him i mean because it is just and he was a horse that we never had to do any vet work at all on over the course of four years of showing which is awesome but you got to be smart how you're riding those horses because they're going to give you their all every time. So you just got to be careful on what you're doing and how hard you ride them because you can hurt them physically because they're going to try hard, so hard that they can hurt themselves. And it's not that they lack confirmation or that they lack the stability underneath them. But if you take a, a professional football player that's just a freak athlete and he's out there running and hitting every day hard, they're going to hurt themselves. That's why they're smart how they uh, go through their practice weeks. You know, they have light practices and maybe have one medium hard practice during the course of the week and they save everything for game day. Mm-hmm. What's well, the same thing? on these horses if they're overachievers and you're out here working apart every day you can't overdo it and cause injuries to the horse so gotta be smart about it i read and this kind of reminds me of that i read that when you were showing not rough at all as a three-year-old you were actually planning on taking him to one more fraternity was it after vegas in between the nrha fraternity and was it mcquay who told you not to so we were in vegas and um we had just got through showing and, and he won the, the deal and and Tim's out there. Uh, we we're just fixing to walk through back into the hotel and uh, we're just we're talking. I, he's asking me what my, my plans are. And I said, well, I just really can't decide what I'm going to do, whether to show him at the Southwest. You know, the Southwest is a, it's a good futurity and there's a lot of money at it. Uh, they win a big check and I didn't know what to do. I'd always shown at the Southwest futurity. And uh, he said, man, he said, if I was you, I'd go home and put that horse in bubble wrap and wait until till uh, the first weekend in December before you go show him hard again. And uh, I talked to Vaughn. I said, you know, I think that's probably a wise decision. And he said, hey, man, I'm leaving your court. Do whatever you want. And so we took him to Southwest and Tony Wolf through the novice class. And, and it was the right thing to do. I mean, I could have went there and uh, my adrenaline got going and overshowed him and caused problems. And, you know, it could have been a year that I made another mistake and blew it. But Tim talked to me the right way and it got me thinking the right way. So now if I've got a horse that if I show it to Tolson, I show it Vegas and they're really good, I save them, save them for the futurity. If I go to show at those two shows and I've had problems here or there, then I'll go make another run. Maybe that horse needs more maturity, but he didn't need the maturity. He just uh, needed to let me stay out of his way so he could go do his thing. But no, advice from guys like, it's so valuable to have guys like Tim. And I, I mean, I call him for advice. I, I call Craig for advice. I call Jordan and just guys that have been doing it for a long time and they've got a tremendous amount of experience on things. Pick their brains. And in our industry, what I love the most is guys, they're not trying to trick you into stuff. They're not trying to trick you into doing something stupid that's going to hurt your career. They want to help you. It's good people. They had help coming up. I've had 
had help coming up. You know, we let young guys come here all the time and ride just to get advice and never charge them a nickel. Nobody ever charged me a nickel for that kind of stuff. It's just uh, the way our industry is, uh, trying to help the next guy get better. So pretty cool bunch of people. But no, Tim was smart about that. Go stick him in bubble wrap and wait for Saturday night in, in December. So. In another interview, you said Craig, referring to Craig Schmerschel, turned it all around for me. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, a, a lot. Uh, I, I talked to you earlier about how he was letting me come ride at his place. Craig is, uh, if you look at the horses, and he's, I'm going to pick on him a little bit. Uh, and it's not picking on him. It's talking about how great he is. If you look back at the horses that he has ridden and has won a ton on, and now he's riding stuff by horses that you know he owns and, and doing uh, stuff that they raised. And, and so I think he's going to take off even to the next level if that's possible. But he was always riding horses that they weren't bred great by second a lot of them were by second-rate horses. I think he single-handedly made Boomernick. He was the only one riding those things. He was putting those things in the finals everywhere. He could take a horse that was not overly talented and get them so broke that he could go beat the more talented horses. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on there. One, he works like crazy. He's a working machine. And I've always had from my parents what they taught me whenever I was a kid was work ethic. So I've, I've always been able to put in a day's work. So that part was good for me. But being, he's a perfectionist on everything on the back of a horse. And if you watch his horses go around, they all look the same. No matter how they're bred, he's able to get them so broke that they look the same. And so I took that part to heart getting the horses extremely broke. Now, there were some things that I was trying to do before on getting my horses broke that weren't quite as smart as how he was doing it. And so I was watching him and just picking his brain. And it's not like he would go there and he would be telling me what to do the whole time. I would just watch his horses. I was watching them at different stages in their two-year-old year. You know, how he had his young guys riding their horses. I was watching his uh, three-year-olds at the beginning of the year, in the middle of the year, at the end of the year, and watching how he's riding his derby horses. And so I stole everything and just sitting there on the fence riding the horses that I had there. And I'm watching him go around and, and the things he's doing to the horse and the, the level of intensity that he goes to and then how he's able to back it off. That's, that's extremely, extremely valuable. But for him to be able the reason I liked his program so good is because he was taking horses that were less talented than other guys' horses and going to beat. And so if you can do that, then when you get that talented horse, then you've really got something. So what's a specific lesson you learned from Craig? So the mental focus is probably the biggest thing that I got from Craig. Now, he's great at teaching a horse to stop and to change leads and circle and all those kinds of things. But everything he's doing on his horse is about that horse being mentally focused. And that's what I've tried to transition to make sure my horses, they're locked in on me and what I've asked them to do. And then you don't have to worry about all of the extra stuff that's going on around you because the horses, they're oblivious to it. They're only thinking about what I'm telling them to do and where they're supposed to be going. It sounds like maybe that could apply to you as a, a rider as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you think about what a lot of people, whenever they're out there riding, and I give Casey Deary grief about this all the time because he's always out there. He's running his mouth nonstop. That's just Casey. And he's not like being mean to anybody. He just talks nonstop. And I told him, I said, Casey, I cannot concentrate when you're in the arena. You're just talking all the time and just picking on him saying that. And he knows I'm giving him a hard time and he gives me a hard time and we're best of friends. So that's no big deal. And if he listens to this, he's going to laugh. <laughs> My wife actually told him whenever Jason's getting ready to show, you can't be in the makeup pen. So we try, if I'm drawing, if it's close to Casey, I try to stay on the opposite side of the pen from Casey. Because he can do it without having the mental focus that I have to have. Okay, he's able to do it. But his program is different. How he trains his horses and it works for him. And obviously, I mean, God, he's going to try to beat your pants off every time you go in the pen. And chances are, he's, he's going to because he's that good. And his horses are that good. But it's different for me. I have to be mentally locked in on what I'm doing. And I teach my horses to be the same way. For some people, for some non-pros, they can go in there and they can be talking and not paying attention. They're that good and they can overcome those things. But it is really good to teach a person to be mentally focused on when they're on the back of a horse. If you think about when we were talking about the training part of it, the release of pressure, okay, that they're going to be learning from that release of pressure. If they're not extremely talented in riding and in training, if they're focused on something else, they're going to be turning loose at the wrong time. 
It's just how it is. So they can be teaching their horse bad habits and not even realize they're doing it. Casey has that much feel to where he can be talking and training his horse at the same time. And, and as he can be looking over there and know what's going on underneath him. I can't. Mm-hmm. I look at my horse. People give me grief a lot of times because whenever I spin my horses, I look down. And they're like, how do you know where you are? Well, it's just... I've done enough. I know where I where I am and, and when I'm supposed to shut off. But I try to become part of the horse. I want the horse to feel like everything that we're doing together, we're in sync on. He's thinking about me. I'm thinking about him. We're thinking the same direction all the time. And that's what works for me. Other guys can do it differently. Like I said, Casey, he's never paying attention. doesn't appear to be paying attention to anything. And he go out and plus one every maneuver. But for me, I have to have that focus because I'm not talented enough to where I can pick up and turn loose at the correct time without me being mentally locked into what I'm doing. And do you need, it sounds like maybe you need some quiet, especially in a social situation before you go in to get there? Or how Yeah, you get there? so I've learned how to internalize everything at the show, no matter what's happening around me. I get grief. Gabriel Diano, every time he rides by me, he says smile because <laughs> I evidently I have a mean look on my face whenever I'm riding. I hide behind my hat. I don't wear a hat a lot whenever I'm at the house, but when I'm at a horse show, I pull it down right down on top of my eyebrows. And so I don't see anything else. It's like me putting my blinders on. I'm not chatting with people a bunch. I'm not sitting around talking. I'm just locked in on what I'm doing. And um, I would say that not everybody is capable of doing that. They'd probably give themselves ulcers or something like that if they were that trying to be focused and, and locked in. It's pressure that I put on myself to get to that point. But if you see me at a major event, that's what you're going to see. Me hiding behind a ball cap, locked in with my horse and not chatty and not with a big smile on my face talking all the time if i'm outside if i'm not on the back of a horse i got a big grin on my face all the time and and i'm cutting up and having a good time but when i'm on the back of a horse all that goes away well we're going over a little bit here but one place before i have some rapid fire questions for you i think one you know area of your career we haven't talked about is maybe your your time with craig johnson yeah can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe so Craig's deal, whenever I, I went to work there, how I got the job was I was showing a, a horse for my dad at the Paint World Show. He had, whenever I finished my uh, stand up at, at Christopher's, at the very end of it, my dad sent me a six-year-old stud. He was maybe had 30 days on him. And so that was going to be my project horse. Whenever I got home, I was training on him. And, and I actually showed him that next summer at the World Show. And I think I was fourth or something like that in the senior ring. Well, Craig was at the show as well, and he saw me show, and he offered me a job at the show, and so I went to work down there. Whenever At the, that point in time, all I was riding was below-level paint horses that had no talent, basically. Whenever I went to Craig's, every horse in the barn was good. I mean, they were all smart chickalinas and by futurity champions and out of futurity. Everything was bred great. They all had talent. So Craig wasn't the type of guy that would sit there on the back of his horse and tell me what to do all the time. But he was a, a guy that probably has more feeling in his seat of his britches than most people have in their, in their whole body. So if you watched him, you can learn a ton. And I did that, you know, and like I said, everything that I do, I've stole from other people from watching them and seeing what can I can adapt to my program and what works for me and what doesn't work for me. Uh, Nothing that I do is that I I invented, you know. So the whole time I was there, yeah, he would give me little pointers here and there and say, hey, for example, one day he, he said, hey, it's a good way to start your horse into the turnaround by squeezing the outside of your calf against him and they drop their nose and turn around. And so I put that on every horse the next day. <laughs> you know, it's learning from guys that have won as much as him and have been doing it as long. You can sit there and watch and just, just swallow it up. And so that's what I did. But I also had great horses too. I went from riding very, very average or below average horses to riding really talented horses. And so the horses taught me a bunch as well. And I was there for three years. I moved there in the summer of 2000, left the summer of 2003. So riding a bunch of good horses, being able to watch him whenever he was out there riding, great, great experience. Do you have any personal habits that you think contribute to making you a better horseman or a better showman, things you do for yourself? Like health-wise? Health-wise, focus-wise. I've always been a big fitness person. Like I always have run and like I, I stay in pretty good shape all the time. Now, the last, seems like the last year we've been short on help all the time and it's been long days and wife's been in the barn working and at the end of the day, you're just exhausted and, and, uh, not, not really feeling like working out. So I'm not as fit as I feel like I should be right now, especially going to Katie next week. But that's something that I think everybody should do. They need to keep their body in in shape. And when you're riding 15 horses a day and clean the stalls and doing all that kind of stuff too, you stay in pretty good shape. But if you don't have a pretty high level of fitness, it's going to be hard for you to be extremely competitive time and time again, in my opinion. So that's been something that 
has always been right there at the top at things that I do. Our relationship with the Lord is is first and foremost. So for me to have any success at all, I believe that it comes from Him. And so everything we do, we try to put Him first. From how we treat other people to how we uh, run our business to how we interact with people, to me, that that's number one top priority. So those are the things that I consider to be outside of the training stuff. I mean, the training stuff is what, what it is. It's, it's a constant learning process. But those are the things that need to be first for me. Uh, God's first, family's second, training horses comes uh, down the road. So that part is, is extremely important. And that's where we're going to always have our priorities. And we've lost customers over it before. You know, we've lost customers that said, hey, whenever you're selling my horse, you should tell people it's the best horse you ever threw a leg over. And that's, for me, that goes against any shape of integrity at all. If you come buy a horse from me, you're going to know what you get whenever you, when you're leaving, you're going to know what that horse is. You're going to know the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and uh, that's just how I am. But people know that about me too. So if they come here to get a horse, they know what they're going to get. So to me, in the long run, that's beneficial to the business. But always having a high level of integrity in this thing. If you want to last, if you want to be around more than just uh, a few years, then treat people with kindness and respect and, and courtesy and how you want to be treated, and then you'll stick around. Yeah, put good things out there and good things will come That's back. That's exactly it. Yeah. Exactly it. What's the best advice you've ever been given as a horseman? Best advice ever. There's so many good advice things, but in the horse deal, the best advice is going to be keep after because every horse is different, first of all. You're going to have success. You're going to have failures. In the horse industry, it's the highs are extremely high, and the lows are extremely low, and they can all happen at the same horse show. I mean, it happens so fast. So you've got to try to stay on just a nice, even kill. Try to be cool about things, and that's hard to do. When you've just blown it like I did on some of my great horses in the past and screwed up and, and didn't make finals or whatever the case may be, it's really hard not to get really down in those situations. But if you're really down, you're not going to train as good. You're not going to be as prepared the next time you show up. So try to stay steady, Eddie. You know, if you have a great run, great. You don't have to go jump off your horse and throw your hands in the air and act like a fool. Just be appreciative of, of your horse and of the fans and go try to do good against the next time. So that steady Eddie is, is going to be the thing that's going to keep you successful for a long time. And last question that I forgot to ask earlier on is, do you have any superstitions when getting ready to show? <laughs> well, I told you that I get my horses ready exactly the same every yeah. time. So that's part of it. Superstitions, I used to, like I said, in the sports, whenever I was playing in sports, there was definite superstitions. Like I did my batting gloves exactly the same way before I hit every time I did. I mean, there was stuff that was exactly the same. And the horses, since the horses are different, I don't have the same superstition. But if I had success on a horse the last time I showed them, I'm going to do everything exactly the same the next time I go show them Mm -hmm. until it quits working. And then I may have to find something else. But I've got a program that works. But if there's little tweaks I have to make to make that horse really good, then I'm going to do it. And I don't very often that. So whenever you're talking about superstitions, mine is if I've got a a horse I prepare a certain way, it's going to be that way from now on until they prove it doesn't work anymore. So. If it ain't broke, don't fix That's it. Exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. Great. Well, people can learn more about you on Facebook. You have a Facebook page yeah. and your website. Anywhere else people should be looking for you? All of that stuff is my wife takes care of. I couldn't hardly tell you how to get to our website or how to get to Facebook. But um, I think if you search our name, you're going to find us. And I think she started Instagram. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I've got a story about that real quick. Yeah, yeah. We're loping around at, at Tulsa. And Brian Bell, he's loping along like this with his phone. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm Snapchat. I said, Snapchat? And I said, isn't that for 12-year-old little girls? He said, no. <laughs> he said, me and Craig Schmersler, he said, we Snapchat back and forth all the time. And so... In my opinion, it's still a 12-year-old girl website, but evidently my wife started one a week or so ago just because uh, everybody told her that she needed to. So I think you can find us on Snapchat as well. Oh, we're for sure going to check that out. <laughs> That's awesome. You're not going to see me doing anything, but you're going to see our horses on there and what's what we've been doing in our business. So I love it. Well, thanks so much. Absolutely.